This morning, I want to invite you to open up to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Typically, I try and give you some little fancy intro and then go into the passage, but today's passage really stands all on its own. So we're going to read it today. Luke 8, 26 to 39. We've been working through encounters with Jesus this Lent season. Different ways people have come into contact with Jesus and how they've responded to Jesus. Today, we're going to see three different groups encounter Jesus and how they respond. But more than that, you're going to read it and be like, there is so much here (laughs) that you're going to want to get trapped in. And we're going to kind of work through some of that stuff as well. So again, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on a hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the the herd of pigs rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, dressed and in his right mind, and they were totally freaked out. (laughs) Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into a boat and he left. The man from whom the demons had come out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home. And tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Last week I started my sermon by talking about how simple our passage was last week. If you remember, I told you it was one of those stories where you read through it and you're like, yep, now what, like is there anything else? No, no. There were no juicy tidbits in our story last week, nothing to excite the trivial pursuit nut inside your head. And for me, when that happens, I get very bored and I want to move on to the next exciting passage. But we were forced last week to deal with the simplicity of the message. And we found that even in the most simple of messages, there is a profound, difficult call at times. This week, we have the complete opposite problem. Did you notice this? This week, it's not that there's no juicy tidbits. There's an overabundance of things in this passage we could spend the entire time talking about. Truly, 
There are so many things we could track down, so many rabbit holes we could go into, so many other mixed metaphors I can mix, like going into the weeds, getting lost in the weeds, trees through the forest. You know the metaphors. There's so many things here, but we're going to miss the, the core of this passage if we do that. But we need to address some of them first. Some of the juicy tidbits that we could track down is, for instance, what is this abyss that these demons are somehow afraid of? Is it hell? Is it like a jail for demons? Where is it? What's going on? Is it the ocean? Is it the sky? I don't know. The Bible's not very clear on this, but I spent time studying it. And then what about this? I don't know if you caught this. I mean, this was your first read through this, but my, my thing on this is, so Jesus casts out these demons into pigs. The pigs then run into the bank or into the water. They die. What happened to the demons? Are they just like floating in the pig carcasses? Like, what? I don't, I don't know. Or better yet, what about the demon stuff in general? Right? This demon stuff, this is some heavy spiritual stuff. And as an American, this is hard. This really rubs against our Western modern worldview, right? This idea of demons, we don't experience demons. We don't see them. How can we trust them? And so our gut is to say, whatever, that's just biblical times, or that was just some schizophrenia. That's not, demons aren't actually true. They're not actually true, and so we dismiss them because of our personal experience. Our personal experience doesn't allow us to embrace the concept of demons. Guys, I want to tell you, I think that's a really dangerous road to go down. To allow personal experience to dictate truth, that's dangerous. And more than that, I think it's intellectually weak. Here's why. In the 80s and 90s, there was a group of religious scholars that got together and called themselves the Jesus Seminar, okay? These were liberal, biblical, critical scholars. A lot of ulls, liberal, biblical, critical. And these weren't just like Joe Schmo. These were preeminent scholars from universities all over the world, okay? Top universities. These were brilliant men. And they got together, and they would have various conferences, and their goal, the Jesus Seminar's goal, was to try to determine what they believed was truth in the Gospels, true about Jesus, from what they believed was false about Jesus, what they believed was myth, okay? And so there was this divide among themselves. And what they ended up doing was they applied this filter of personal experience. If they had experienced whatever it is that scripture said, then it was true. But if it didn't fit into their worldview, if they hadn't experienced it or they hadn't seen it, then it wasn't true. So all the supernatural stuff, all the healings, throw them out. Jesus walking on water, trash it. The resurrection never happened. And when you read the gospel that the Jesus seminar came up with after they cut a bunch of it out, you read it, and the Jesus you come up with is nothing more than a good moral teacher. That's it. He's Gandhi. He's Martin Luther King. Good moral teacher. That's it. Here's the problem. And Paul recognized this very early on in 1 Corinthians. If you take out the resurrection, 
You have nothing. Christianity is a waste of time. It's completely pointless. What is the point of following another good teacher? Why waste your Sundays? There's no reason for that. But more than that, you take out the, you take out the resurrection. What hope do you have? Imagine how dreary funerals would be. All of them, no hope. Well, it was great. Now we're just going to be worm food. That's not the hope we have. The resurrection changes everything. And so these guys coming in and undermining this, this was a really big deal. But here's the thing. There's a reason you've never heard about the Jesus Seminar. These guys, from their inception, were ridiculed for their behavior. They were ridiculed for the way they tried to understand truth. You cannot base truth on personal experience. It's unfounded. It's unreliable. It's unsubstantiated. You can't do it. And so scholars ripped apart the Jesus Seminar. We're like, this is so dumb. You can't do it, and it's why you don't hear about them anymore. They've been completely dismissed off the map. They're still writing books, but honestly, they, they have these like upstarts where they try for a few months, and then they just get slammed back down again. They are, it was a waste of time. It was a terrible endeavor. But what they taught us is very interesting, is when you allow personal experience to be your determining factor on what is true, it is a very dangerous road to go down, especially biblically. Look, I'm not a doctor, and I've never experienced a brain tumor. And nobody in my family has ever experienced a brain tumor, thank God. But it doesn't change the reality that there's brain tumors in the world. Right? It just doesn't. And sure, you can say, well, you can walk into a hospital room and see that. It's on the table. But here's the thing. If we lived somewhere else, if we were in the middle of the jungle or whatever it is, and I never had an opportunity to get to a brain tumor, it doesn't take away the reality of a brain tumor. I have to trust on the reliable witness of other people, right? So I trust in experts. I trust in what scholars say on this matter. I trust what doctors say. If doctors say, I've experienced a brain tumor, then I go, okay, you're a reliable person. Now, here's why this matters. Let's say that the Bible is the only source that tells us demons exist. I will admit, I think that's sketchy evidence then. If the Bible alone simply says demons exist, you could probably write it off and go, oh, well, they misunderstood it. But here's the thing. When we look throughout history, we have so many examples of demon possession in so many different cultures that it's hard to just write this off. The Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, they all wrote about demon possession. It was so common, in fact, that I'm not going to say that like everyone knew a demon-possessed guy. I wouldn't say that. But it was so common that manuals were written to be able to diagnose demon possession from non-demon possession, from some mental disorder. They actually had manuals 2,000 years ago doing this, and they had books on how to cast out demons. There's a whole ritual that people had to get rid of demons. And so people from all over the ancient world and the scriptures have affirmed for us a very important truth that we need to wrestle with. Demons exist. Demons are true. Demons are not some figment of fiction. They exist in the world and they have power. They have the ability to influence us. They have the ability to possess us. And by possess, I mean they have the ability to control our voice. They have the ability to control our movements, as this guy clearly experienced, right? The demon speaks. What is your name? Legion, for we are many. 
And then it talks about how the guy was handcuffed and tied and that he broke out of this. Well, that's supernatural strength. That's got to be from the demon. Demons exist. Demons are real. And demons have power. But, but, what we learn from this story, what we learn from Scripture is this. While demons are real, demons respect the authority of Jesus. And it's not just that they respect it. They tremble before him. Demons understand who God is. They get, he has authority over them. He has power over them. And when he speaks, they listen. They tremble before him. They instantly listen in this story. And they beg him when he shows up, don't torture us. Don't send us away. Don't send us to the abyss. Jesus has authority over the demons, and they tremble before him. Now, here's the thing. I wanted to just start with this. As I said at the beginning, we could truly go on about demons. We could spend an entire sermon series on demons, how they look and what they do and where they are and how you get all this. We could do that. But that's not the point of this passage. That's not the point of this passage. That's not what it's getting at. It's getting at a far more profound truth that I want to wrestle with today. So instead of getting lost in the weeds, I want to step back. I want to reread the story, basically start over with the assumption demons are real. But we don't need to fear them. Demons are real. But also, I think the point of this story, as I've studied it, I think there's three encounters that I want to look at with you today. Three encounters. First, the demons. How do they respond to Jesus? Okay, that's a fair question. How do the demons respond? Second, how do the townspeople respond to Jesus? And third, how does the newly freed man respond to Jesus. Three people, three groups, all respond very differently, and every single one of them can teach us something significant, either about the way we respond to Jesus or the way others respond to Jesus. That's what we're looking at today. So let's go back in this text. Uh, Luke 8, verse 26 through 39. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man, Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked the man, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Demons, the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man whom the demons had gone out of, sitting at the feet of Jesus, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into a boat and he left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. So three groups this morning we're going to look at. Three groups. The first group, the demons. The demons. The demons respond to Jesus in a very unique way. As soon as he walks in, what do they do? They instantly recognize his authority. Instantly. I know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God. I know you are. I know you. Don't torture me. There's this automatic sense of respect. You have authority over me. I have to submit to you, even if I don't like it. But please don't hurt me. There's this balance within them, this recognition of authority, and at the same time, this fear that wells up inside of them. I told you before, and this is why I think this is significant and encouragement for us, church. There are people out there who have written off the idea of demons. That is true. They've totally written them off. They don't want anything to do with them because it doesn't rub their worldview. And we talked about why that's a damaging position. But there's people on the other side that are so overwhelmed and overcome by demons. They see demons around every corner and it scares them. Right? I mean, this is really the idea behind the whole horror franchise. Right? Is demons are on every corner and they're out to get us and, oh no! We're in a lot of trouble. Here's the thing. I think what this passage communicates to us is two things. Yes, demons are real. But they are not to be messed with. Demons are real and they are not to be messed with. This is important. They are not to be messed with. We joke around sometimes. Ouija boards, blood oaths. We go and see a psychic or a medium because, oh, you know, it's the fun thing to do. That is real dangerous territory. Scripture says, do not give the devil a foothold. Resist him and he will flee from you. There's this idea within Scripture that even if you think they're harmless, why even give him options? Why even give him a chance? So church, stay away from that stuff. It's not worth it even if you think it's a joke, even if you don't believe it. Why mess with it? It's been shown over and over again to have some sort of demonic activity. Why mess with it? Demons are real. Don't mess with them. At the same time, you don't have to fear them. You don't have to fear a demon. And the reason you don't have to fear a demon is because you're covered by the blood of Christ. You're covered with the authority of Jesus Christ, the one they fall down and tremble before. Jesus gave his disciples authority to cast out and rebuke demons. That same authority is given down to us. We have a right by his name, by his authority, to speak over a demon and get rid of them. We don't have to fear them. We don't have to fear them. If God is for us, who can be against us? That doesn't just stand for mankind. That stands for demons as well. We do not need to fear demons. But don't pretend they don't exist. Don't pretend they don't exist. 
blanking on where we're going. Oh, you guys ever get to this point? Yeah, I do. So that's the first group. The first group is the demons. Don't be afraid of them, but don't pretend they don't exist. Okay? The second group, the second group is the townspeople. Think about these people. They literally watched their prophets plummet before their very eyes. Pigs drowning. That's my pigs drowning sound. I haven't perfected it yet. I've got a little more work to do. It doesn't come up often in conversation. Um, pigs drowning. So it's a little understandable that they would be upset, right? I mean, their livelihood has just been destroyed. But it doesn't say that they're upset. What does it say? They were afraid. It's an odd response. What were they afraid of? Were they afraid that Jesus is just going to clear the land of pigs and there goes their whole livestock and then they've got no bacon? I don't know. Were they afraid that somehow Jesus was going to come in and flip their world upside down, totally change it around, and maybe that freaked them out? They saw this guy have this radical change in front of them, and they're like, I don't want anything to do with that. I like the way it is. I don't know. Or maybe it was just something about who God was that they wanted nothing to do with him. I don't know. Whatever the case, it could have been that these guys were just, you know, really bad Jews, and the way we would know they'd be bad Jews is they're raising pigs. Pigs and Jews do not always go well together. But they may have just been, you know, Gentiles. They may have been non-Jews. We don't really know, but their response is a little odd. They fear him, and so they kick him out. Get away from us. We don't want anything to do with you. And here's why this is important for us, church. That is the same response many people in our lives are going to have towards Jesus. There are going to be people who hear about what God is doing and want nothing to do with him. There's going to be people who will not only hear, but will see God act in their lives and write him off. I mean, just think about this. Did anybody catch this this week? There was an article... Um, it was all over Facebook, at least on the feeds that I follow. But it was all over Facebook. There was a journal published in a scientific journal, journal article, written by a bunch of Chinese scientists who used the word the creator three times in the article. And their conclusion was that the human hand was made by the creator. You and I would be like, yeah, okay. This sent many in the scientific community in an uproar. I mean, this just upset people like nobody's business. And you had people calling on this article when this came to light to retract it. They never dealt with the actual substance or the content of the article. It was just the idea that a God could be mentioned. It infuriated them made them so angry, they demanded a retraction. So the article, the, the magazine, the, the journal publication, they pulled it back. Nobody understood how this could have slipped through the peer review process. So they demanded a retraction and they took it back. Well, here's the thing. This is the irony in the entire thing. I told you it was a bunch of Chinese scientists that came up with this. Well, it turns out it was just a bad translation. They meant to say nature. That's the hand was made by nature and not by the creator. But there was a blind rage because of their dogma. They couldn't allow the opportunity or the option that a god could possibly have had his hand in this at all. 
Had they listened or even just asked a question, it would have been clarified. But there's this blind rage that drives people to write off God. Look, I follow the atheist blogs. I read the books because I'm curious by the whole thing. I find it fascinating. And I'm going to tell you, I think there are some decent atheist arguments out there, but the majority of them are just weak. And even the ones that I think are decent are not compelling enough for me to shake my faith. But the point is this. When I read the blogs and I read the books, the thing that sticks out to me is there's just anger in the writings. I don't know if anybody else follows the blogs. Rarely is an argument put forth by, by the new atheists. Rarely. It's usually just a blind rage towards the idea of a god. It's kind of weird, and I don't really understand it. The other interesting thing is we have a cousin who's a, a, an atheist himself, and he's a philosophy of religious professor, and I asked him about this. Hey, what do you think of these new atheists? And as an atheist, he writes these guys off because his own perspective of these dominant atheist writers is that they're just driven by blind rage, not actually by substantive arguments. This is important because there's times where you're going to share the gospel with people. You're going to share the hope that you have and people are just going to shut you down because you use the name Jesus or you talk about God. And then there's other stories, there's other examples like people in this story today where not only do they hear about God, but they actually see God themselves. They see God at work. They see a crazy miracle. There's this crazy guy running around naked in the cemetery. And then the next moment he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. More than that, they see the demons come out of the man into the pigs and then blah, 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 blah. I'm working on it. I'm working on the noise, okay? It's, i got to refine the in part. But they see this happen, and they still reject. Get out of here. Have you ever met somebody like this, too? You go into a hospital, and their child has been sick, and it is... You know, it was some really bad diagnosis. The doctors felt there was no hope. And the guy and the, the wife, they're, they're in the chapel praying constantly. And then, miraculously, the child makes a recovery. And praise God that the child makes a recovery. And then that parent just writes it up to, good luck. We deserve this one. Karma. How do you miss God in that? Or have you ever talked with somebody and you're sitting there talking to them and you're just, they're, they're telling you about their life and you're looking at it and you're like, man, you are so blessed by God. And they're completely blind to the idea. No, no, I just earned it. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I deserve this. You and I look at that and we're like, no, that is clearly God at work in your life. How do you miss this? No, it's not God. Get out of here. If you haven't experienced this, when you start to share your faith, when you start to share the hope that you have and the gospel that you've experienced, you're going to get pushback. And it's hard to not take it personally. It's hard. It's hard when people are rejecting you to be like, oh, they're rejecting me. I don't like that. But scripture tells us if they reject you, it's because they rejected me first, Jesus says. And if the world hates you, it's because it hated me first. 
When the world rejects you, when they say, I don't want anything to do with your message, that's not about you. It's about God. And here's the thing. Your job, your job is not to save people. It's not. Your job is not to convict them. Your job is not to make them understand their need for a savior. Your job is not to show them, you know, where they're wrong and where you're right. That's not your job. Your job is to point to what Christ is doing in your own life. Your job is to point to what Christ is doing in the world, what Christ is doing in their life. Your job is to witness. You're a mirror to help them see what God is doing, what God is upright. You cannot control the outcome. Their response is between them and God. That's not on you. So don't allow that to be a fear and a reason to not want to share your faith. Look, Melissa and I have this conversation a lot. What does it look like to share your faith at work? What does it look like to share your faith with your family, with your friends that aren't Christian? What does it look like? It's a hard balance. But don't allow this fear of rejection to dissuade you somehow from figuring out how to be a witness in that community. That's our job. That's our call. The way people receive it, that's between them and God. Your job is to witness. And people reject God for all sorts of reasons. And we don't know what they are. You know, some people, they do have intellectual doubts. And it's why I try and stay up on the literature so I understand the arguments. Rarely is that the case. And even still, you're not going to argue someone into the kingdom of God, right? But oftentimes, people don't want to come to God because they like being God of their own life. They'll never say that. But they don't like the idea that their ways are wrong or that there's a better way or that God is in their life and has some ideas for them. They don't like that. Our job is to witness. Our job is to do that humbly, to do that with grace, to do that with joy, and to pray for them. That's our job. The last group really demonstrates this. The last man. So, so far we've seen the demons exist, they're real, but we do not need to fear them. That's important. Second, we've seen the second group. The second group is that there will be people that reject your message. That's on them. That's between them and God. That shouldn't be reason for you to not share. The third is this guy who receives the gospel clearly as, as clear as can be, right? This guy's a wreck at the beginning of the story. He's running around naked, without a house, living in the cemetery. It says he's in the tombs, right? That is the equivalent of the cemetery. So I want you to imagine this. You're driving down beach. And then you come to hazard, right? Beach and hazard. Thanks, Duncan, for getting in the car. Did you put the blinker on? Turn signal, indicator light, whatever you want to call it. You're driving down and you see the Westminster Memorial funeral home thing there. And you look out and there's a funeral procession going on. A bunch of people gathered around a grave. And then out of nowhere comes this crazy naked guy yelling at him. That's the image. Okay, that's this guy. Total weirdo. Total weirdo. And then Jesus comes in. Jesus speaks a word of grace to him. The man is clearly freed of his demons. He experiences some sense of forgiveness. There's this reconciliation between him and God. That is the grace of God in his life, clearly. And he gets it. 
You look at his life and he understands that he has been freed. He understands he has received forgiveness. He understands he has received the grace of God and look at how it changes him. He sits at the feet of his master. The image I get is this. He is clinging to every word of his master. It says he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, this guy who was running around crazy into solitary places and in the cemetery is now seated at the feet of his master in his right mind, clothed. Total transformation. So he begs Jesus when the other guys kick him away, let me come with you. Let me come. Jesus says, no, I got a better plan. I want you to go, and I want you to um, tell everybody what happened. This is just what we talked about. He doesn't say, go and convict everybody, go and fix everybody, go and save everybody. No, he just says, witness. Just tell them, give them a detailed account of what happens. And so the man goes. And then it tells us, and this is where we miss this in the English, In the English, it just says, Jesus told him to go, and the man went and told all that happened. But in the Greek, this brings it out. That word tell that Jesus first uses, go and tell, says, give an orderly account of what happened. Go and relay the information. Okay. But it says that the man went and he preached the gospel. He didn't just give an orderly account. He preached it. He preached it. What do we mean by preach? Okay, here's the difference between an orderly account and preaching. Orderly account is really just information. It's all in the head. This happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. But if I've demonstrated anything, preaching is not an intellectual exercise solely. Preaching involves the totality of who you are. It wells from within you. It involves your emotions, your heart, your soul, your passions. And you can't help but contain it. It just flows out of you. Here's why. Okay, people always wonder, why are you so excited when you preach? Why are you so loud? (laughs) I don't know that. I don't take it personally. No. Here's why. When you preach, this is the typical way most people prepare a sermon, is I'll look at it Monday and I'll start working through it and I study the passage so that I understand what's its point, okay? And then later in the week, I'll actually write it. But what I do is I think about it the entire week. If this is the truth, is that this is a man who has been freed, this is a man who has received forgiveness, this is a man who has experienced grace, and this is how he responds, I think about how have I been freed? How have I experienced forgiveness? How have I experienced grace? And that just bubbles up inside of me. And so by the time I get to this, how can I sit down and go, and ladies and gentlemen, today in our path, come on, come on. So church, my encouragement to you today is this. Hear the gospel. Be reminded of its truth. You are a forgiven people. You have been freed from your sins. You have experienced the grace of Christ in your life. This morning, remember that. Reflect on it. Chew on it. And allow it to bubble up from within so that when you walk out those doors, your life of worship will truly begin. You will not help but preach. You may not have the same like, energy level as I do. And thank God for that. How many people would be scared to death of Christians if you did? But God made you a specific way with a specific passion with a specific soul, 
with a specific heart. Allow the gospel to speak to you and flow out of that. Don't be afraid of demons. Don't be afraid of rejection. Preach the gospel, preachers. Amen.